you know, in spite of all this Astros frenzy, like it has occurred to me lately that the general tenor of our society and our world and what you hear from people in the real world, the way we talk about stuff and the way we talk about each other is often very inflammatory and riddled with anxiety. There's a lot of fear in the world in 2019 for some reason, like you would get the impression if you just kind of dropped out of the sky into this culture we're living in, especially if you dropped into the the world of Twitter, or if you um, looked at uh, the news online, everything is falling apart. Everything is on the brink of disaster. We're always just one step away from total devastation. Like it's always something. We're always anxious, right? Always worked up. People on the right are often worked up about, you know, well, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. There's just no more Judeo-Christian values and everything is over now. Uh, it's just terrible. And then people on the left are often like, well, the world is ending with climate change and, and the people over there don't even care about it and blah, blah, blah. And like everything is just awful, bad all the time. And I don't want to downplay any of people's concerns. I just think sometimes a little bit of perspective can come in handy. So this week I was thinking, it's 2019. What was the world like 100 years ago? 1919. Not that long ago relative to the age of the earth. You know, it's pretty new here and that's pretty recent development. So 100 years ago, 1919, if anybody knows your history at all, you know, in 1919, World War I was mercifully slowly coming to a close. A war that over a decade's time took 37 million lives. Like, I know we get upset about stuff, but can you imagine 37 million people gone in just a few years' time? So the world was dealing with that just a hundred years. Now, if, if people then were, were up in arms or complaining or chicken little skies falling like we are today, like, I, would come, I would understand. I would totally get that because they had the circumstances that matched. Um, and, you know, then the war ended and it didn't take very long for things to fall apart again. You know, it just took like 20 years or so for things to really hit the fan again. And, and then the world was on fire all over again. Look, the decade from 31 to 40, it was really contentious and scary. Those were anxious times. The Axis powers of Germany, Italy, and Japan, they were invading entire countries at will. No one really stood up to them. People said, ah, that's not right. And then they went on with their lives. Like they just turned the other way and that's it. And you know, they were not just invading little territories, Crimea and stuff that we fight about in election years. They were like going after entire sovereign nations. Like by 1940, let me give you the list of countries that the Axis powers had successfully invaded, either completely or partially. Manchuria, China, Singapore, Albania, Egypt, Ethiopia, Greece, Austria, Czechoslovakia, Poland, almost, Denmark, Norway, Luxembourg, Netherlands, Belgium, and even parts of France. The Axis powers were on the brink of total domination of Western Europe, Eastern Asia, Northern Africa, and the South Pacific. It was almost all over. And it just really struck me as I was thinking about this this week. How did we get to that point? Like in the modern world. This wasn't that long ago. This was eight decades ago. Some of y'all were alive then, right? I said, some of y'all were alive then. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I didn't mean to do that. I just, anyway, so... Uh, how does that happen, 
right? So I think the simplest answer is it was leadership. The bad guys had the best leaders. And I don't mean that like they had the most noble leaders. They, they didn't have the most ethical leaders. They had the most strategic leaders. And the most committed leaders and the most courageous leaders. And like Adolf Hitler, for all of his obvious insanity, he knew how to lead people. And he led them effectively. And he led them with a very clear vision. And he led them with a victorious strategy that he led them to believe in. And they went all in, all in with him on that insane, victorious strategy. He, they believed that they could win in spite of the odds that were stacked against them. And they followed him through it all. Right? Now, that leadership is what propelled the Actus powers to, to dominate for a season. Now, on the other side of it, um, there was uh, a, a lack of courageous leadership. So you had um, Great Britain, which was kind of seen as the leading nation of the free world at that time. And um, the prime minister was de facto the uh, leader of the free world in, in those days. And, and in the late 1930s, Great Britain was led by a prime minister named Neville Chamberlain, who I feel really sorry for because the only thing we all know him for is the stuff we're going to talk about now. I'm sure he was a pleasant guy. I'm sure he was a really nice guy. But <clears throat> Neville Chamberlain looked the part of a leader in terms of what people typically, traditionally expect out of their leaders. He was well-mannered, well-dressed, well-educated, well-spoken. He was six foot two, a perfect mustache, and he was, he was a proper British gentleman. But he lacked the courage to call a spade a spade and face up to the threats that were surrounding Great Britain and the free world. So um, and, and instead of saying, hey, this is a real problem, our backs are against the wall, you know, this is the worst threat we face in a generation, he adopted a policy of appeasement, and um, that policy of appeasement with um, nations like Germany took him to places like Munich, where he signed agreements like the Munich Agreement and shook hands with Adolf Hitler, and, and he was like, now, Adolf, you're not going to take any more countries after this, right? And Adolf was like, no. And then, <laughs> is that, I don't and then, he, and then Chamberlain went home, nine, that's what it is, nine. And then Chamberlain went home, and claimed victory. He acted like he had accomplished something, right? To put his people at ease, he came home and said, no more German aggression, we signed a deal, and there will be peace for our time, you're welcome. And in a matter of months, Germany had completely sacked Poland and had their sights set on other key nations, including Great Britain. In the process, Chamberlain lost the confidence of his people because if you want to lose the confidence of the people that you're leading, promise them something they know is not true and then don't follow through. Meanwhile, there's a threat bearing down on them and you as a leader are living in denial. Like, that is the quickest way to lose your following. Neville Chamberlain was voted out and replaced with a man named Winston Churchill, who did not look the part of a leader. <laughs> Winston Churchill, just traditionally speaking, right, anyone can be a leader, but Winston Churchill was five foot six wide. And I'm just kidding. <laughs> he was five foot six and uh, not well-spoken, not well-mannered, not a proper British gentleman at all, not popular, not polished, not really a politician, but 
Winston Churchill had what people, especially people in peril, craved most. He had a clear vision. A clear vision for victory. A strategy to achieve it and the will to see it through. That's it. That's the recipe. And he continued to pound it home. If you've not listened to his speeches online, like, I encourage you to do it. Do it like Tuesday afternoon to get geared up for game one of the World Series. Like, he will pump you up because he's very clear, very strategic, and he clearly has the will to see that vision through. And the people of Britain and the world responded accordingly. And it's not an overstatement to say that it's because of Winston Churchill himself that we enjoy the freedoms and the world that we enjoy today. One man standing up in the gap, sticking to his vision and in encouraging others to see the possibility of victory. There's the quote that I put in your study guides. I'm going to put it on the screen as well. And this just kind of sums up his whole approach. What is our aim? I can answer it in one word, victory. Victory at all costs, victory in spite of all terror, victory however long and hard the road may be, for without victory there is no survival. These are pretty words, and pretty words only until you realize the world he inherited. He inherited a disastrous war, a despicable enemy. He inherited a demoralized people, and he turned it all around with a simple vision, a clear strategy, and the will to see it through. This is our sixth week of seven in leadership as we talk about the um, life of Nehemiah, this Old Testament figure. And if you're not familiar with scripture and you don't really understand why we're talking about this random guy from the Old Testament, like um, it's because nothing changes the world like leadership. Nothing on earth has the power to change the lives of people you care about like good leadership. And if you can take it on yourself to grow from maybe mediocre leadership or just pleasant leadership to strong leadership, you can impact and influence the lives of people you love in ways that will outlive you. Generational change can come when we learn how to lead ourselves and the people we care about, the people in our charge, a little bit better. So Nehemiah lived in the 400s um, BC, and he was given the task of overseeing the rebuilding of Jerusalem's wall. Jerusalem had lain in ruins for 150 years, vulnerable, susceptible to attack. This was the city of God. And here's um, the city just laying there, ashamed in ruins, completely demolished. And Nehemiah goes to Jerusalem in 444 BC to rebuild the wall. Today we're going to see a major turning point in Nehemiah's leadership and life. We're gonna see the importance of adaptive leadership. And I want you to picture yourself as Nehemiah, and I want you to picture Nehemiah's wall as your vision, your task, whoever it is you're leading, like put yourself in this story and let's learn from Nehemiah together. I'm going to read this passage in three different parts. The first one, um, all, all three are going to be in your study, guys. The first one starts in verse 6 of the fourth chapter of the book of Nehemiah. All right? It's in your study, guides and on the, on the wall. So, this is Nehemiah speaking first person. We rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half of its height. For the people worked with all of their heart. But when Sembalat, if you weren't here last week, these are the antagonists. These are the guys working against Nehemiah. We don't know why. All I can assume is that they're the kind of people that will always stand in the way of your success. Like in, they cannot stand the thought of someone doing something good. 
And there's just gonna be antagonistic people in your life and they have a bone to pick with Nehemiah and this project. So Sembalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites and the people of Ashad heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed. They were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Pay attention. Y'all pay attention here. This is key. Because in a matter of four or five verses, the people go from working with all their heart. Things are going great. They've rebuilt the wall half its height. Things are awesome. And then suddenly they can't do it anymore. Something happens. First of all, I want you to get a scope in your mind of this project. Like this was a major undertaking. This is the Nehemiah wall. Okay, it still exists and they've dug up part of it in archaeological digs and you can go see it. If y'all are going to the Holy Land with me in January, there's 60 of y'all going to the Holy Land with me in January. I'm so excited. And you're going to probably see this tell, this dig site. The wall that Nehemiah and his people are building in the 400s, nine feet wide. A nine foot wide wall, right? Major undertaking. And so they've built half of it like they built all the way around, but half of its height, huge undertaking. They should be proud of themselves working with all their hearts, but then they stop. They want to quit. So the question is, what happened between verse six and verse 10? Did they just tuck her out? Did they just need a, a break? Did they need a Snickers bar? Like what happened in the matter of those five verses? Well, in context, it's clear that they weren't just physically tired because you're going to see in a few verses later, they're right back to work. They didn't need a big break. They didn't need the Snickers bar. They didn't need like whatever. They got right back to work with all their hearts again. Something else is going on. And if you've ever led people for any length of time, you know that it's not just about physical strength sometimes. Sometimes it's about the heart. And sometimes people get worn out. The symptoms look like physical fatigue, but really there's something underneath the surface, and that's what's happening here. The X factor, the, the um, variable in the equation, is the threat. Suddenly there's a threat, and this is a very real threat. Multiple armies, multiple enemies have formed an alliance against Jerusalem, and they have the city surrounded. You're going to get an image in, throughout this chapter of the city surrounded by these nefarious dark forces that want to take the city down. And so you've got multiple armies surrounding the city. You've got people super anxious about their kids' safety and their safety. And then you've got a leader, Nehemiah, who makes a mistake. This is his first real flaw, his first miscalculation. And it's a common mistake every leader makes. He catches a case of tunnel vision. Nehemiah is so intent on this one mission, so intent on building the wall that no changing circumstances will get him off of this idea. And if you dads ever go to Disney World and you're like, we're going to Space Mountain? I don't care, you haven't eaten in seven hours? We're <laughs> like, that kind of thing. We all get there. We're like, we're gonna accomplish this one thing. We might all die on the way, but we're gonna accomplish this one thing. And sometimes we do it um, I think we try to protect our people from reality. Sometimes we're like, just keep your head down. Don't, uh, you know, pay no mind to the multiple armies surrounding us and bearing down on us. Keep your head down and build a wall. And sometimes it's, it's well-intentioned. 
You want to protect them from anxiety. Don't worry, we tell them, which is the worst thing you can tell someone who's worried. <laughs> Don't worry. Those aren't even real arrows. You know, <laughs> like we can, we can be very deceptive in our desire to protect people we love. But the ironic thing is in our um, desire to protect them from reality, we actually make them worry more. We double their fear and double their anxiety because not only do they see the threat, they see us. They see you, the leader, ignoring the threat. And that makes them even more nervous. Whose hand's on the wheel here? Like you've all been in situations like that where you gave up on a leader who just pulled the wool over their eyes. They were disconnected from reality, either just because or they meant to be, you know? And it caused you to lose trust. Well, listen, Nehemiah's response to a city surrounded and a people anxious was to put, um, you know, one guy in a watchtower. One guy. That's what he said. I'm going to say a little prayer, you guys. I'll be praying for you guys, and we're going to put one guy to watch all these, <laughs> all these armies. But there's thousands of people in these armies, Nehemiah. How are we going to survive? And Nehemiah's like, I've got a guy. Don't worry. I've got a guy. He's in the tower. Just get back to work. And the people are like, I think we're done. I'm tired. <laughs> like, if you want to wear your people out, willfully ignore the pressure they're under willfully ignore the stress they feel, willfully ignore the threats bearing down on them as if they don't matter. You know, even if you're well-intentioned, you will wear your people out. Your kids, if you have kids, your spouse, uh, you'll wear each other out, spouses, your family, your friends, your church that you're trying to lead, if you're a leader here at the church, like your company, like that's the quickest way to wear your people out. Now, I, as I wrote this sermon, Kayla and I wrote it together in, this week, and I, I, we worried about beating you up. Like, you're going to leave this sermon feeling like, well, I've messed everything up. I've made all the mistakes that they talked about, and it's too late. It's not. It's only too late if you decide that it's too late. And if you decide to double down on your mistakes because you're insecure or ashamed or because you're stubborn, that's a choice you can make, but it doesn't have to be that way. There's something called adaptation. And the key to good leadership is not perfection, it's adaptation. Every leader makes mistakes. What do you do when you make a mistake? Do you double down or do you change course? Let's follow Nehemiah's story a little bit further now as we pick it up um, at verse 11. <clears throat> also, our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them. So the enemies are threatening even more. Well, the enemies are emboldened by this one guy in a tower strategy, Right? and put an end to their work. And then the Jews who lived near them, so there were Jews who lived like outside the city that heard the whispers and rumblings of the threats. They came and told us 10 times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. And therefore, here's the pivot, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at, at exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, this is, his, this is his Braveheart speech. This is, I love this. This is Nehemiah channeling Churchill, all right? He says to the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. And when our enemies heard that we frustrated, that we were aware of the plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own works. They got right back to work. They weren't too tired to work. They were demoralized by Nehemiah's initial response. When Nehemiah saw his mistake, 
and changed course, giving a, a, a proportionate response to the threats surrounding the people, suddenly they were motivated again. And the same thing works the same way in our lives. When you give a, a proportionate response to the threats facing your kids, every time they leave the house, they're going to be faced with threats. And if you just want to raise happy kids that just superficially smile because they're supposed to, that's fine. But when they go out and face the threats you didn't prepare them for, who do you think they'll blame? They'll wonder why mom and dad didn't prepare me for this. So you can be pleasant now or you can be honest now. Preparing them for the struggles ahead, preparing them for the battle, responding proportionately to the threats that they're certain to face. And the same applies for any relationships in which you have influence as, as leaders, right? So we can be pleasant or we can be honest. You can't always be both. Nehemiah was pleasant at first and then he chose honesty and just in time because his um, people were giving out on him. They were losing trust and he brought it back. And then they start to work again. Now part of what brings them back is this speech. And what this speech says, it, like you don't have to be Mel Gibson with the white and blue paint. You don't have to be Winston Churchill with the, the gravitas. Like you can still encourage to encourage means to put courage in a person. To put fearlessness in a person. How do you do that? Okay. How do you put courage in a person? And as I'm talking about this, I just want you to be honest. I had to be real honest with myself this week about this question. Are the people that I'm leading more courageous day to day or less because of my leadership? Are they more secure or more insecure? because of my leadership? Am I leading consistently enough with a clear enough vision? Am I leading outside my own feelings or is it like unpredictable? Like dad's in a bad mood today, like no leadership from dad today. You know, like is it, what is it? How am I doing? How am I leading? So to encourage people, I think starts with these, very, these three very simple things that Nehemiah says. He says, don't be afraid. Whatever makes you afraid has you. Whatever scares you, owns you. Don't be afraid. Even if you feel fear, don't let it have you, right? Overcome it. Don't be afraid. And, and then he says, remember God. Remember how awesome and fearsome God is who fights on our behalf. And then he says, go out there and fight like it matters. Fight for your families. Fight for your wives. Fight for your kids. Fight for each other. Fight for the city. It's a beautiful thing. But first he says, don't be afraid. Then he says, remember God. And then he says, fight like it matters. You can put that on your fridge every day. Let your kids know on the way out the door. Don't be afraid. You're going to feel fear, but don't be afraid. Remember God who is awesome and mighty. He's with you. And then live like it matters. Fight like it's worth it, like something's at stake. Be a light in the darkness. That's encouraging. And if you felt like your leadership is more discouraging than encouraging, then follow the path of Nehemiah here. It's very simple. It's very clear. All right. Um, you see in the passage how he shifts um, uh, uh, his strategy. He doubles down even more on, um, on, on the guards. Um, and this is important because whenever you shift away from your tunnel vision mission, you're going to have to sacrifice something. And as we're going to see in the last part of this passage, Nehemiah sacrifices efficiency. He's willing to let the wall 
building slow um, in order to protect the people. So he's got guards stationed around every part of the wall, behind every family, okay? Let's read the last part of this passage. This is from 16 to 23. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers who posted them, uh, the officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall, and those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held the weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who surrounded, uh, I'm sorry, the men who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. And then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out. And we're widely separated from each other along the wall. Whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work with half of the men holding spears from the first light of dawn until the stars came out. At that time, I said to the people, have every man and every and his helpers stay inside Jerusalem at night. So in other words, don't go home to your suburban life. Stay here in the city and fight and build. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon even when he went for water. So the first thing I want you to see here, and maybe the most important thing, is that Nehemiah was in it with his people he was leading. He was not an ivory tower leader from on high. And that's um, only leaders here who are leading a lot of people, maybe with some prestige. Like you probably know what I mean, how easy it is to separate yourself from the the work of of the people, right? And, and even probably in other situations as well, you can kind of lead in a detached way. Nehemiah is in it. He's building the wall with the people. A great, strong leader will never ask the people they're leading to do something that they won't do themselves. And Nehemiah is following that principle here. But not only that, Nehemiah is um, intent on protecting his people from attack even if it means slowing down the building. Now, he doesn't stop building. He doesn't just go on the attack. He doesn't just outfit his people with swords and tell them to put their shovels away. He also doesn't continue in denial and just you know, keep building. Don't worry about your sword. Leave it at home. Let's just keep building. He doesn't do either of those things. He is a steady hand. And I love the image, not only of half the men backing off the building and, and bearing arms to protect the people. I love the image of the guys that are carrying the materials who suddenly are only able to carry half the materials they could carry before because they're only carrying with one hand. And in the other hand, they have a weapon. It gave me uh, this image this week of uh, someone carrying a shovel and a sword. So I asked people on Facebook this week for could I borrow a sword? And... uh, I was offered about 37 swords, <laughs> real, real, real swords, which really made me feel more urgency about pastoring you. <laughs> I don't know what that means. What are y'all preparing for? <laughs> Why medieval weapons? I don't, anyway, um, We'll, we'll get back to that in another sermon, but I appreciated uh, the, the sword. And, and I, I want to kind of explain what this image, how it spoke to me, because um, Nehemiah is saying, let's keep building and let's protect ourselves. <clears throat> let's keep building this long-term defense, this wall, and let's also be ready for a momentary emergency, an attack. Let's not be without 
protection in a momentary emergency, but let's also not forsake the longer-term vision of the wall, right? And so he's saying, let's do both. He's not sending people out with two shovels, and he's not sending people out with two swords. And this is a, I think, if, if you feel lost in your leadership, if you go home with nothing else today, go home with the image of a shovel and a sword. Because you as a leader are called to carry both. And by carrying both, you're called to model that for the people you're leading. Let me explain. The shovel represents the day-to-day grind, the long-term building of your character, your heart, your faith that goes on even when you don't feel like it. It's one brick at a time, one day at a time. It's a grind. You're studying the Bible. You're getting on your knees and praying. You're making it to that men's group or you're exposing yourself to Christian fellowship and when you rather stay home, you're going to worship like all these things. You're investing in the story like you're, you're, you're giving yourself one day at a time, one brick at a time to build something lasting, a fortress, a faith. But we don't just do that. We also live in this reality where we face daily threats spiritual ones, temptations that can ruin us if we're not ready, depression that can overtake us if we're not taking uh, appropriate, proportionate measures against it, decisions that can define us, you know, fear, uncertainty, darkness that can overcome us, ugly words said to someone we're supposed to take care of that can wreck our relationships. And if we are defenseless in those moments, it doesn't matter what kind of wall we're building, what kind of life we're having day to day, going to church and stuff. If we're defenseless when the attack comes, it's all for nothing. The Bible speaks of swords often actually, especially in the New Testament, it speaks of the sword, not as a physical weapon as much as um, the sword, which is the spirit, the Bible says, the spirit and the word of God. And so the idea of the sword isn't a, a physical attack mechanism. It is a spiritual one. Are, are you, when your moment comes, when that emergency strikes, when you're under spiritual attack, do you have the Holy Spirit in you? Are you ready? When Jesus was tempted by the devil in the wilderness, what did he do? He spoke scripture to the enemy. Are you ready to do that? Not to be judgy, but I would guess not for most of us. Because we're trying to reach non-religious people here. Mission accomplished. Y'all don't know the Bible. That's great. But listen, you can get to know it. People a lot less smart than you have gotten to know it. You can do it. But you got to stop making excuses. We have, a, we have a Bible study every week for every sword that y'all have at home. Like we have 37 Bible studies every week, morning, day, and night, men's, women's, everybody together. Like no more excuses. Dive in. If you feel defenseless in the face of temptation, it's because you're not preparing yourself. But you can. There are ways to do it. And you're also called by God to prepare the people that you love, the people in your charge and in your care. And if you're not doing it yourself, how do you expect them to? Listen, every day when you send your kids out, send them out with a shovel and a sword. Every day when you kiss your spouse goodbye in the morning, send her out or him out with a shovel and a sword. 
Every day you leave the house, leave with your shovel and your sword. I'm gonna put one brick down the wall of my faith, but I'm also gonna be ready just in case I come under some attack or some temptation today. That's what it means to lead. That's the will of God for your life. That's the vision God gave us in Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew 10, listen, it's not gonna be easy. You're gonna come under all kinds of attacks. But be as wise as serpents and be as innocent as doves. Have your sword and your shovel every day. Can we pray together? Jesus, help us to receive this teaching even though some of us feel like we've missed it, honestly, and we feel a lot of shame about not leading well the people that you put in our care and our charge. Lord, help us to see that just like it wasn't too late for humanity when Jesus came and gave his all for us, it's not too late for us and those we're leading. As long as we don't stubbornly stick to our guns and the mistakes of our past, Lord, um, and because of shame and insecurity, just continue to double down on those mistakes. Lord, help us to adapt instead, to courageously step out and name the threats, respond proportionally to the, to the threats that face us and the people we love, and to encourage, to encourage those that we're leading, to see that victory is coming, even when all seems lost. Victory is coming, so they need not fear. They just remember you and live like it matters. Victory is coming. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.